Uh, do you want to do a one, two, three clap? <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's just that last time there was so much that anyway, I think it's a good practice. I agree. Okay, thanks for indulging me. Um, okay, I've pressed record. Do you want to count down? Okay. 12, 11, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Three, two, one. Happy All New right. Year, Dan. Happy New Year. It's the last day of 2020. Well, we are recording <gasps> on the last day of 2020. Oh my goodness. It's an auspicious beginning for us, Tian Tian. Yeah, an auspicious try number two. Yeah, well, I mean, people <laughs> out there don't know that. They think that this is just the first one. So they'll be like, oh my gosh, this is like unusually polished for a first try. It's almost like a, it's a kind of polish that I would expect from a second try, but it's the <laughs> first one. So these people really know their stuff. Oh, by the way, this is the Watching Film Podcast. <laughs> yes, I'm, it is. I'm TT. And I'm Dan. Thank you for joining us. So you know, actually, well, one of one of the things that I was going to ask you was how how do you want to start the podcast? I mean, we don't have to start it the same way every time, but I was just wondering your thoughts about it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that um, one of the I had some ideas about how to start this one, our first one, mm -hmm. because this is a podcast about movies and basketball. Um, and the two for those of you, two kinds of watching film that can. Uh, you know, I think that that's not an obvious two things to connect together, yeah. as, as many of our friends who we've told about starting this podcast have yeah. pointed out to us implicitly. They're, they're not so rude as to say it explicitly. But I think like one of the things I just wanted to start with is um, by, you know, us talking a little bit about why those two things matter to us mm. and why we're doing this and, uh, you know, like, I feel like one of the ways that we could just introduce ourselves is by both of us answering that question. Oof. So indulge me, Dan, about uh, oh my goodness. what is it that you love about basketball? Oh no, we're, we're transitioning from uh, uh, like empty banter to like deep inner gazing very quickly. I mean, it feels like a smooth transition to me. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, wait, sorry, what was the question again? Well, just what do you, what do, why do you love basketball? Okay, well, um, you've, you've liked, you've um, been into basketball a lot longer than I have, I think. I've, I've only been into basketball since 2016, which was the uh, 73 and 9 Golden State Warriors season. <laughs> um, so I've, I've told you this story before. I feel like, well, actually, this is kind of this is a lot like um, uh, like your first therapy session with someone who's not your first therapist, because um, you know, like the when when you see a therapist for the first time, you're like, oh my god, like no one has ever heard these stories. Where to begin? <laughs> so, like the telling is like what is new for you as a teller is also new for the hearer, mm -hmm. and once you've moved on to your second and later therapist there's a weird um like a 
asymmetry in the relationship, right? Where you're like, okay, well, this is somebody who knows nothing about me. And so they need to hear everything at some point, but it's no longer interesting for me to tell it in quite the same way because I've already told it all. So now I'm doing it not for our benefit, but primarily for your benefit, right? Yeah. And I feel like a lot of, well, maybe not a lot, I don't know, um, but a, a lot of stories that we tell on this podcast will have that kind of structure where you and I will already know some part of it, but we're telling it for the benefit of someone who hasn't heard it before. That's all my preamble to like my, how did I get into basketball story? Because you already know some of it. I know some of it, but you know, you, you surprised me last time and I, I want to hear you tell it again. I really like this story. Okay, sure. Well, so um, I remember, so I was not into basketball at all. Um, I grew up watching hockey, right? I grew up in Canada. So hockey was the thing that I watched as a kid. And then I stopped watching it for a while. And I think there were like a number of years where I didn't really watch sports. And then I remember reading an article in the New York Times that came out during that regular season, the 20, I guess it would have been 2015, 2016 regular season when the Warriors were on that run and Steph Curry was, um, I, th I think that's the year he was repeating as an MVP, right? Um, and, and he was also going for the three-point record that year. Um, and I, I, it was one of those things where like something that happens in a sport is so big that it shows up in the news section of the newspaper and not the sports yeah. section, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's fun when that happens. And so that's where I read it. And I was like, oh, like the way that they're describing what's going on seems really exciting. Like, I don't remember, it would be interesting to go back and look at the article now because I had zero like knowledge <laughs> about basketball. So I don't even know how I would have interpreted like the sports talk in the article. Um, but I, I, they must've made it sound really fun. Like, oh, they're like moving around a lot, a lot, three pointers, whatever. And so I remembered thinking, and it must've been like a kind of a slow year for me. <laughs> I must not have had a lot going on if I was just like, oh, maybe I should learn this whole new sport. Um, there was something in you that was open to discovering a whole new hobby, a whole new yeah. thing to like really get into and learn about at that same time. I mean, that's that's the part of the story, the way that you've told it to me before that's really resonated with me is that, do you know what I'm talking about? Is that something you feel comfortable saying more about? Yeah, actually, I'm not sure what you're referring to. Can you say a little bit more? <laughs> um, so, so we're already surprising each other. On the oh, no. oh, no. <laughs> so what I remember is you saying that so much of like what really drew you to basketball is the idea of seeing people really pick themselves up mm. from a really low point and to like the way that people find a way to get back into the game when the game seems lost already or after you know coming back from a really bad game and still staying in it or you know even like resigning yourself to a bad season but still finding ways to keep going when you find those ways to keep going and I remember you also just talking about um at the start of basketball I think of you getting really into basketball maybe it was even that season like walking into a bar to watch the champ the end of the championship game 
is this part ringing a bell? Do you want to go from here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the first thing you said, like the idea that sports is like not even primarily about sports. Yeah. But like what it affords, like most centrally is just it's a fishbowl into someone else's professional life. Yeah. Um, and like what distinguishes sports from other kinds of careers is the kind of voyeuristic access that's given into it. Um, yeah, I feel like that is a whole, I, I'm sure we'll like come back and talk more about that later. But I don't think like that's something that I discovered about what I liked about basketball later on. So I don't think I knew that at the beginning. Right. Like at the beginning, I was just like, oh, I just want to see like cool three pointers or something. <laughs> um, yeah. And well, so I think like I, I kind of want to like ask you about your origin story now and because I, I feel like I, I think we could have like I mean okay we're, we're just sort of like laying at the table here we have all the dishes you know it's Thanksgiving or what have you and you want to like just New Year's <laughs> <laughs> yes I know what date it is um it's a but metaphor it's... I see now yes <laughs> Yeah. Should we have like a sound effect that signals whenever one of us moves into metaphor so that the other person isn't embarrassed? <laughs> I mean, we would we would be doing that sound effect so often. True. Yeah, we would never get out of it. So we would never actually have to play it again. We would play it once. Yeah. <laughs> and then once on on the at the end of the podcast. Okay. Patrick, Patrick will write it. All right, Patrick, Patrick, if you get on Patrick, that, please. Hear us insert sound here. Yes. Okay, good. Um, yeah, so so I, I feel like, you know, my story is the sweet potatoes and like, you know, we're so hungry that we could just like, just go ham on the sweet potatoes, but there are so many other delectable dishes that maybe we should, like the first plate should be like a little bit of each thing, you know? Oh, yes. A little bit of Southern casserole with the pineapple and the cheddar cheese and the Ritz crackers. <laughs> main protein you know and then we'll come back and we'll have a whole whole other plate on just the sweet potatoes later you know what I'm saying um so I guess if I'm the pineapple cheese casserole um should I go into why I love basketball yes I'm just curious like where did you first like come across it yeah just what's your whole origin story with it well you know, my, I really inherited it from my mother. My mother um, actually played um, high school basketball in China. She was a point guard. Um, and, you know, she really loved basketball. Um, and I grew up in Ogden, Utah, during the height of like the Stockton Malone years, when Jerry Sloan was the coach and when they went um, in back-to-back -back years against the Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, um, Chicago Bulls. Yeah. Pitched, of course, by Phil Jackson. So really, you know, like an incredibly exciting time to be into basketball. And I remember, um, you know, all of Utah being in like this really heightened sort of like excitement about the Utah Jazz during a lot of my childhood. Um, because of you know that run, even though they lost twice to the Chicago Bulls, um, and you know I think like Michael Jordan was such a this is such a cliche, but he was a once in a generation player, and so it was it felt so historic and exciting to be you know like able to watch him 
night after night. And how did you how did you primarily encounter the Utah jazz, jazz fandom? Like, was stuff happening at school? Was it like when you went out in public, you saw things? Like, how was the atmosphere of the Utah jazz felt in those days? Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I really, um, like I said, I really feel like I inherited most of it from my mom, who was so into the sport. And, but it was, I mean, it was like all over my um, elementary school, too. I remember, you know, us wearing, I had like a Utah Jazz purple sweatshirt. Um, They gave us actually free tickets for some games. And this was like, mm-hmm. this was more in middle school and high school. But if you did like, if you got onto the honor roll for a certain number of um, semesters, if you like completed different academic achievements at your school, you could win three tickets. Whoa. I remember that also being a thing. Um, so yeah, I also got to go to a few games. And this was like after Stockton Malone, this was like during the Karolinko. Um, era when you know Jerry Sloan was still coaching but the Jazz were much less I think like um they had moved back into a very like small market team Mm. so this is like late 90s mid 90s yeah to early 2000s yeah yeah and you know I I really um by the time that you met me I remember I was not watching basketball anymore and you were really <laughs> excited to find out that I had, you know, like had this for a long time. And for me, you know, like getting back into basketball has really been about sort of um, realizing that there were so many sort of, I think it's not untied to the way that I think about being in academia and an academic now mm-hmm. because, um, you know, so much of getting back into it was realizing that I had repressed a lot of desires and said no to a lot of things that I actually really enjoy a lot and so um yeah that was a big part of being I guess like getting back into watching basketball and being a fan again I'm really glad you brought that up because I actually forgotten that about how we first started talking about basketball but what was really like notable to me from those early conversations um, was that you you talked about it as if you were in recovery. Yeah. Right. Like you you would say things like, "Oh, in college, I was watching like every day. Like it was so bad, Dan. I like never got anything done, and I just like can't get into it now." And I felt a little bit like I was coming into your life as an enabler. Um which I would have felt guilty about if I thought about basketball in the same way. But for me, it's like, oh, no, I was also like consuming it in some form every day, I think. But I didn't see that as a problem. And I felt like that was the only difference between the two of us, which is that you thought it was a problem. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I think that, you know, for me, like, well, this goes into another question that I I've wanted to ask you before, which is, um, are people surprised to find out that you're really into basketball? Because, you know, in a way, I think people are surprised when they find out that I am. Um, In a way, it shouldn't be because, you know, we're both of um, Chinese-American descent. Chinese people love basketball. 
Um, it's such a huge sport in China. I think that that's not often how NBA fandom is portrayed in the United States, even though, you know, like Asian Americans are a huge percentage of the, the fandom, of course. Um, and, and also just the audience in China where, you know, games are broadcast. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, Yao Ming's um, stardom also in the 90s, but a lot of it precedes that too. And I think for me, you know, like a lot of the, the, I think like real conflictedness I had about basketball and just this feeling that I couldn't watch it for a long time had to do with the way that it didn't seem to fit like this theory that other people had about who I was. Mm. So um, time watching basketball was always like time not spent reading or time not spent watching serious movies or, you know, being up to date, doing work on something else. And so I think um, for me, it was really like realizing that, you know, this conflict was sort of like constructed and arbitrary about, you know, and not fitting this like image that some hypothetical person had about who I was and what my interests were. But what about for you? Are, are people surprised to hear that about you? And, and how do you think about that in relation to like, just who you are? Hold on, <clears throat> before we move on there, um there is a connection that has emerged for our um, naysayer friends who don't see what the connection is between movies and basketball. And I hadn't thought of this before, but yeah, I didn't realize that there was this connection between the two for you, which is like, for you, I mean, you're a serious film watcher. You watch movies as your career and basketball must slot into your brain as frivolous viewing because what serious film scholar would ever talk about like like the daily deluge of basketball games i mean like what is the visually redeeming value of that and like as a like a film person i mean your viewing time is so like i imagine like you 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 think a lot about the like amount of time you have and like where to spend it like like a currency and so I can totally see now why basketball would emerge as this thing that would like rob, like every game watched is another Fellini movie that just like sits <laughs> on the bookshelf gathering dust. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, but I think also just the way that basketball fandom does, I think a lot of sports do this, like there's this whole speculative dimension to it that actually takes up a lot of mental energy. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't even as simple as that I was just watching games. I was also like reading, I was following how the brackets lined up. I was reading speculative articles about how the brackets could change, et cetera, which is so much the pleasure of it. Yeah. I'm curious about like how your basketball consumption is different now than it was in your most intense periods when you were younger. Because it, it, you did really describe it as an addiction. You were like, oh yeah, I was like looking up stats every day. <laughs> um, do you still look up stats every day? I don't. I think that, um, I think I'm still sort of scared to get into that, that side of it. But I also know that, um, I think also basketball watching is so much more social for me now, partly because I have you to talk about it with. And I, I do have Aww. other friends to talk about it with a little too. And I think that's made the hey. difference. <laughs> I'm scared. Um, 
I want to hear you say more about like how how other people react though to your to it being because it's a fairly big part of your life or your personal interest, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I, it, it's surprising to me. Um, like it's still surprising to me that it is such a big part of my life. Um, I mean, so I, I don't tend to think of myself as a sports person, like sports for, for like a lot of my life wasn't sort of one of the, the first things that I would reach for when thinking about like sort of what, what are the pillars of, you know, my day. Um, but actually I'm into a lot of sports. You know, and so it's this thing that's almost like weirdly doesn't rise to the level of self identification. Um, and yet something that I spend like a lot of time on, like I'm, I'm into a lot of sport, like I was into a lot of hockey growing up. Um, now, I mean, I watch basketball like pretty much every day, you know, like if I'm watching a movie with my partner, I often have like a game on my phone on like silent and I'm just like tracking it, you know. Um, I watch a lot of tennis. Um, so I also play tennis, um, and like I played, like I played floor hockey growing up in Canada. Like I had a basketball hoop in the back, so I would like shoot. Um, I curled. Um, my <laughs> high school team was quite good, if I do say so. Um, and and um, yeah, I don't know. I just like so. Actually, I'm involved in like four, three to five sports. <laughs> like playing and watching fairly consistently which would make you think like oh like sports is like a really big thing but I I just sort of almost don't think about it yeah it feels that is sort of like how it strikes me is that it it feels like such a background part of your life that it's always sort of ongoing and and there for me it's a little bit more compartmentalized I mean partly because I I don't participate in sports I just watch but right right We've played basketball a couple of times. You were kind enough to come and like <laughs> fill out the roster. Yeah. <laughs> Should we talk about like how we got into movies or do you want to save that for another podcast? I talk about a movie today. I feel like that's so big that maybe we should save that for another podcast. Um, one of okay. the things I just wanted to sort of ask you, though, is what kind of movie watcher are you? Maybe as like a way to st- get into that larger question that we can actually save for another time. Because I, I often get the sense that you and I, you know, even though we enjoy a lot of the same movies, we're actually really different kinds of movie watchers. Hmm. Um, so what do you mean by what kind of movie watcher are you? I think partly I mean this just... Um, you know, because I've been trained in a certain way through my academic background to be a very close watcher. And I think that as a result, I actually miss a lot of things for, for all sort of like mm. the strengths of formal film analysis and whatever. I feel like I often miss um, a lot of larger big picture things that I'm always so grateful uh-huh. to talk with you about later because I, I feel like we actually fill in a lot of gaps for one another. Oh, interesting. So you, you're like already doing like shot by shot analysis as you're watching and you're focusing a lot on technical components because that's like what you do in film studies. I can't help it. I feel like my department has really bludgeoned me so much into, into or, you know, not bludgeoned, right. given me these new skills of right. um, thinking that way. And, you know, I often am thinking like, oh, if I had to teach this film, how would I teach it? Um, right. 
And that's already so much a part of how I'm thinking about things as I watch them. Whereas you, I think, are thinking a lot about like um, culturally and you know, just like what, how does this film sort of like teach us something new or like slot into what we already knew about, you know, the way that um, we think about themes or family or romantic connections, things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. It, that made me realize that actually I haven't seen a lot of your like super detailed technical analysis of film. Um, I think mainly because the, the papers of yours that I've seen, well, like, so the paper that you gave at ASA on Asian Reddit, um, like you weren't doing like, like super technical analysis of movie scenes. So actually I feel like this is like a side of your analytical brain that I actually like haven't seen much. Like, like what do you do to break down a scene, right? Like how, how do you approach it? What tools do you bring to it? So I'd be super interested to like, see that side of you as this podcast goes on um maybe later this episode too when we talk about the movies that we're talking about <laughs> um yeah so that's interesting so actually i think there are things that we have in common um like i also feel like it's very hard for me to turn off my work brain when i'm watching just any movie um and also because i tend to work on like really like silly or like popular commercial lowbrow middle brow like entertainment products it is especially hard to turn off my brain right because it like there's no saving it by like putting on a really dumb movie because you know like that's sort of where I work anyway um I don't think I do the sort of like obviously I'm not like a film I was never a film major um so I don't have that rigorous background that you have um, I think actually like what sort of shaped the way that I approach movies the most was um, Stanley Cavell's writing on movies. Um, I don't, actually don't know how much you've read. I know you've read some, but I don't know how, how big a deal Cavell was for you, if at all. Um, just a little bit of the pre-marriage comedies work. Okay. It's, not a, it's not a big part of my, my training and my background. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the book Pursuits of Happiness on the on the screwball um, comedies. Yeah. So like that stuff and like also reading sort of standalone essays on different movies. Like I remember reading one on um, North by Northwest and it, it, I think it, it wasn't like a particularly great essay. It, it's not one of my favorites of his, but I remember like reading it and thinking, oh, like you can say anything you want. <laughs> like when you're interpreting a movie, you can say anything you want. And this is like at a time, you know, I was probably like, you know, early grad school or something. And you're sort of figuring out what you can say, right? Like when you're doing a reading of a movie, like what am I allowed to say? What's a stretch? What's not a stretch? And I feel like a lot of like advisor or like professor feedback in those early phases is like you figuring out what like what counts as an interpretation what can pass how much evidence does there need to be in the movie in order to justify an interpretation that kind of thing right also like how and, do you fit your template into the pre-existing template how do you fit your ideas into the pre-existing template of what counts as academic right. or you know like work totally yeah and like and how to weigh evidence too Right. So like if you see like a photograph of a mother on like the mantle, 
like how many details like that do you need before you can advance something involving the mother as an overall interpretive framework? Like these things sort of become instinct when you've been doing it for a while, but at the beginning, I think you really don't know. And you're sort of like relying on your like film teachers or whoever to tell you like, oh, this is kind of a stretch or this is not, a, or you could totally do this or, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think like reading Cavell really early in my like academic career, I would say, um, was like, it really shaped me in the sense that it really made me feel like you could say anything you wanted. Like it was really, really freeing in that respect, right? Like in his readings, he would take like the tiniest detail and like go off on it for pages. And it just like sort of unlatched that part of my brain early on that was worried about how much I was allowed to say. It just sort of took that away like really, really early on um, and so, yeah, I would say, yeah, I probably am not, am not as like technically focused as you, and I'm more interested in the kinds of like readings that he would do, you know, I mean, and also the fact that he wasn't a film person. Um, I mean, when he started, there weren't film departments, right? Um, but it, it was sort of this approach of like, okay, and, and, you know, even later in his life, he would always say like, <clears throat> one, one difference between like, <clears throat> film and something like music, which he was also like a musician. It's like, you need a certain amount of technical training in order to talk about music to a certain degree. But you don't need to have ever taken a film class or have ever learned a film term to describe what the camera effect does at the beginning of Vertigo, right? You can just say like, oh, well, like, it looks like this thing is getting further while the other, you know, like you can always use lay language. <laughs> And that was like a big thing in his in his criticism too. One of the you know things that Cavell said though that I do remember um, this is one of the quotes that he's quite well known for. And I I think you know even though he you're right that he so wasn't sort of a formal close analysis um, kind of person. I think that there's this quote of his that makes so much sense to me in the way that I think about like films too and what the film scholar can really contribute to um, film watching is that, you know, he said he has this quote about how philosophy is about like showing someone else how you see the world and making them see it the same way. And I think that a lot of um, that's how film writing makes sense to me and is exciting to me is in sort of like looking at this common object with another person, but using that common object to say, no, this is how I see the world as sort of like a whole, or this is how um, I gain new knowledge or it makes new sense to me. So even though, you know, Cavell wasn't coming from a formal close analysis background or method um, that, sort of like insight has always made so much sense to me. Yeah, that's great. Um, and that brings us to a segment we call embarrassing disclosures from TT and Dan. Um, so, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> for, <laughs> oh yes, it's happening. Um, so for years I had this like blog that I wrote on back when blogs were cool, you know, um, and the like bio or like whatever thing that was like pinned in the side of the blog was a Cavell quote that was something like you know art is like often lauded for like bringing people together but it also separates them mm. um and actually like when I think about that the the first thing that I think of is this one time when my friend Anthony from college um 
we we were roommates and also like really close friends and he was actually like my first film interlocutor like he turned me on to like not just whatever was playing at the movieplex movies and we like my first like sort of beyond that level of like film conversation was with him oh, i remember I one time me? we went to the like tiff tiff had like a screening room in toronto that operated year round and i remember one time we went and we saw sancho the bailiff um and like i liked it but i wasn't like super like overwhelmed by it for whatever reason that day um and then as soon as it ended he like didn't say anything and he went straight into the bathroom and didn't come out for like 15 minutes and then after he came out and he looked like super shaken um and i remember feeling like really separated from him at that moment you know it was like oh i can see you're having this like crazy reaction and i didn't have that reaction and there wasn't really anything left to say you know yeah did you so you didn't continue the conversation I mean, we might have talked about it after, but there wasn't really like, like there wasn't really anything to talk through, right? It's just like it it had hit for him in a way that it hadn't hit for me that day. Um, you know, like like what what is there to say about that? Tantian's film brain is going. Well, there's a lot to say about that. <laughs> no, that's a beautiful story. I mean, I. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about, um, I'm just thinking about it and I'm thinking about the quote and I'm thinking about my, yeah, multiple experiences watching Sancho the Bailiff in crowds and how different my reactions have been even to people crying in, in a movie theater. That's something we've really lost this year, you know, because of the movie theaters closing and because of the pandemic. Um, I mean, circumstances necessitated it that we, you know, weren't watching these movies in crowds. But I think that that is such a significant part of the movie going experience that I, I always really liked that I, I think um, we've had to learn how to do differently this year. Because there have, have been you ever been hearing a person cry in a theater, hearing them sniffle a little bit, like there's times when it really triggers me i think to um feel this like extra level there's been other times when it's really annoyed me where it's kind of like irritated me where it feels like it really breaks the con my own contemplation of the movie um but it's for sure something that i've noticed as a, a missing piece of movie going for me this year movie watching right. yeah right um, sorry, I was going to ask, have you ever thought about or have you heard anyone talk about or talk to anyone about how going to the movies and sex are like these two experiences where you go through a thing of a certain duration and then after you ask, was it good for you? Good for you too. <laughs> you know, like they're both like they're experiences that are happening, but that also involve a certain kind of like monitoring of the other person and like a constant checking. Yeah. Um, like you were just saying, like when you notice the other person start to cry or whatever. And then there's like that sort of like moment after of like evaluation or and, and like coming back into language where you're just like, you know, how is that for you? And you have that sort of like comparative moment. Well, it's funny. That's so that's like such a good insight. But I also feel like sex and movie watching are so different and that's why a lot of people who don't know each other well choose 
to go to the movies as a first date, right? Because it's- I don't know, people, so... a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people choose to have sex as a first date too. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know, like movies actually, they, they're, they're so much easier than sex because movies are like, you know that both people are at the same place at the same time. Like, you know that sort of like the pace is, is the same, right? At least during the movie, after the movie, it's, you're right, it's different. But like, I feel like that's the joy of movie watching, going to the movies, especially with someone you don't know very well, is that you can rely on like, we will have the same experience at the same time. Just not the same as sex. Well, actually, I was going to ask you, like, can you think of a time when, like, maybe, let's say watching a movie was, like, an experience of being separated from somebody? I wonder if any of those have, like, really stuck in your mind over the years. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of um, early movie watching with my mom was like that, actually. So, you know, I think that especially because we were watching, she was really interested in art movies. <laughs> And she was really interested in um, independent, you know, like Sundance Film Festival style movies. And oh wow, I didn't. I don't think I knew that. I mean, I knew yeah. she took you to Sundance, but I'm only realizing now how much like the like the basketball and the like indie cinema are things that you share with her. Yeah, yeah, I really inherited, you know, a love for both of those from my mom, um, and you know, there was always like a level, because those were the movies that I was watching with her, there was often a level of sophistication and um, and humor and sexiness and all of those things that was above above what I could comprehend, but I knew that it was, that it was there and that I just didn't understand it and that she understood yeah. it. Um, Do you remember some of the early movies that you would have watched with her that weren't like, sort of, uh, like movieplex movies? Yeah, I actually do remember Pulp Fiction being one of them. I remember the Royal wow. I remember West wow. the Royal Tenenbaums being one of them and like having to cover my eyes during the suicide scene. Oh, wow. Well, um, you covered your own eyes? I think my mom nudged me to cover my eyes. <laughs> I remember the English patient being one of them and a lot of sex scenes that I had to cover my eyes for. <laughs> I remember that political satire, Wag the, Wag the Dog. It's one of them. Oh, yeah. 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 Right. There were a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, since you brought up moms, maybe we can segue to talking about the movie that we just watched. Yeah, let's do, do it. Do you want to do that? Okay. Um, so we just watched the movie Relic. Uh, directed by Natalie James. There's not a lot of information about Natalie James that I could find. Do you know anything about this director? I don't. Okay. So maybe a first movie. So Relic is a horror movie um, that came out this last year. Um, am I right in saying it's an Australian movie? Although it looks like with some Asian financing as well? Yeah, it looks like it was like produced um, like a lot of the production was based in Australia. Um, and like, actually one thing that I liked was, so like, I think Emily Mortimer actually has a British accent in the movie, unless I'm like really bad at telling accents <laughs> apart. 
But you know how like in another movie they would have been like, oh, well, we're in Australia, give everyone an Australian accent. But they like don't really explain it. Like her daughter has an Australian accent. She has a British accent and it's fine. Like just come with the, like show up with the accent that you came with kind of thing. I kind of like that. <laughs> it's like whenever John Zulu is in a Japanese movie, but she's just speaking Chinese, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, we'll, we'll fix this in post. <laughs> it never gets fixed. Right. right. Um, so what are like, maybe we can start by by me asking you or us asking each other, um, what are the the things that stick out to you most now that we've just finished watching them, watching the movie? Yeah, so Relic is a horror movie. Can I, I should, um, I also mentioned that we, we both sort of separately watched Black Christmas this week. Yes, so we are also going to talk about Black Christmas. So I was, so you know, both of these are um, horror movies and both of that, we were really kind of like itching for, to watch something that was a horror movie. And we also um, were, I think like interested at that point in trying to see, you know, like Black Christmas in particular because it was sort of like kind of fit the genre of being a Christmas movie at the same time that it was a very, unusual. Um, we don't have a lot of like scary Christmas movies. I was thinking a lot about actually something with Relic and with Black Christmas since they're both horror movies that are set within a large house and where there's sort of um, where so much of the movie actually takes place inside of that house and inside of rooms that there's an understanding that people don't go into those rooms in the house. And so a lot of like dark sort of like hidden things happen in these corners of the house. Um, mm. I was actually thinking a lot about something that Jim Lastro, who's a scholar of, um, a scholar in my department, a scholar of both horror movies, but also of sound in film and sound technology in film. He has this point about how there's, I think it's a really interesting point about how horror movies share something with experimental films in that they're both about um, really like this, they're really interested in getting the viewer to sort of like practice these active looking skills and these ideas about looking at the corners of the frame instead of the center of the frame. So like the typical Christmas movie, I think of the typical Christmas movie as an extremely passive event where you're mostly, you know, you know where to look. Um, there's no real surprises. It's more about lulling you into the correct emotions that you're supposed to have as the season draws near. And I think that um, Relic and Black Christmas, I mean, they just so, they exemplify so well, like the way that the horror movie really pushes you to think about like what is happening outside of the frame? What is that dark thing like right in the corner over there? Like, can we pay a little bit more attention there? And just this idea of you like scanning the image constantly and how exhausting that is actually as sort of the process of watching a movie. Like that was so much something that came to mind for me, both in the wild camera movement that we get in Black Christmas, um, but also the way that so much of Relic is about like, do you notice this stark detail that's hidden in the corner of the frame? Is it a relevant or irrelevant connection that Christmas is also about the veiling of an event? Um, like Santa shows up at night, but <laughs> only after you've gone to bed. And so something, something like quite like sinister has potentially sinister has happened in your house, right? Which is 
typically like intruders should not come into your house but someone is going to come into your house and like leave traces of the fact that he was there but you only encounter him through the traces yeah and there's so much morality around christmas too like you only get the treats you only get the good things if you were good all year and there's like so, so much oh, of it. Yeah. It's not not every child deserves the good gifts. Like you have to have been a non-naughty child all year. It is a really interesting inversion from Halloween, which is in Halloween, the child is the moral arbiter on the host, right? The child mm -hmm. says trigger treat. And so, but like, but then on, on Christmas, they're the one judged for that as opposed to the one who's kind of like doling it out. Yeah, I mean, both of these movies are really, I feel like, quite free from morality, though, which was, I think, what I really, one of the things oh, interesting. I really enjoy about Black Christmas and Relic, because, you know, that's such a tired thing for me from horror movies is how moralistic a lot of those are, too. Okay, oh, so I see. So when you say moralistic, you mean, like, it doesn't, like, come down hard on one side at the end, but, like, insofar as like Black Christmas is so much about like female sexuality and like the moralizing of that. And then um, like Relic is like, I mean, you were talking about like, like within the first five, 10 minutes of the movie, I feel like the intense like moral pressure of like having a mother and having a daughter. But, but by moralizing, you mean more like delivering a moral kind of at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, just to go back over a little bit more. So for Relic, you know, it's really the story of Emily Mortimer plays this woman who has an adult, young adult daughter of her own. And they go to visit her mother um, who lives in a more rural sort of like isolated area, but she lives by herself. And her mother's in her 80s. And we very much um, are supplied with the sense that her mother is losing her memory or her mother has like an unreliable memory and that there's this sort of um, conflict that arises about to what extent her mother is still able to live independently and how far gone her mother has already become um, and at what point sort of like the daughter and granddaughter should intervene and start making decisions. And to me, I think like a lot of the horror of the movie was sort of like, I thought that it was really sympathetic about just sort of how much of aging involves this horror of being surveilled by your own family and having to perform a level of okayness that you may not, um, that you may not have anymore, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually had a question that I wanted to ask you about that, which was, do you think this movie is more about the fear of being the grandmother or is it more about the fear of being the people around the grandmother? That's such a good question. Um, I think that those things end up being the same thing. And, and this mm. is not to get too much into the, uh, spoiling the movie, but I think that that's sort of like where the hereditary part of the horror also like enters the, the movie as we get the sense that actually this is something that will be passed down in the family. Mm -hmm. Should we talk about whether we're gonna do spoilers on this show? <laughs> I think we can try to avoid them as much as possible. Does that make sense? 
or at least yeah. can flag for the listeners when a spoiler is coming. Right. So, like you know, fast forward um, to this timestamp if you if you plan on watching this movie, kind of thing. Exactly. Well, I think that um, I mean one of the we could just talk about like what struck us as scary from both of these mm. movies. If that interests mm-hmm. you, I think that sure. for me, I really liked the way that Relic played so much with like a lot of the jump scares, even and like horrifying sort of like anticipations of horrifying moments in this movie have so much to do with like dread of how a mother is going to react to something. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking about how that is such a trope in horror is like not being able to bear the mother's reaction to something. Um, Maybe even of contemporary horror. I mean, I feel like that was such a big part of um, the Ari Aster film Hereditary. Um, But also, you know, we had it in The Witch where there was so much of the, a lot of that um, film by Robert Eggers, The Witch is about sort of like trying to salvage the honor of the father of the family by covering up, um, you know, a, a mistake that happens in the story. But so much of it ends up being like the mother's wrath and like anger and trying to like forestall that when she finds out what happened. Mm-hmm. But it's also in the Babadook, like so much of the horror is about like a mother's anger being uncontrollable or something too large, um, even for her to bear. Yeah, so one thing, I, I feel like my, we, we're having like different impulses about like where to begin with this movie, which is mm-hmm. great. I think. Yeah. Like, like, you're, you're, like your impulse right now is just to like delve into this and my impulse is to like only look at like really really large scale things <laughs> so maybe I'll throw in the thing that I'm thinking of and then like we'll meet in the middle at some point because I you know um I, I will want to get into detail and I'm sure like you I feel like you're having more of a zoom out impulse and I'm having more of a zoom in impulse um but one thing I wanted to just ask like, you about like also is in vertigo where it's both zooming out <laughs> in at the same time <laughs> you see I didn't use any jargon at all <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> maybe that can be like the Dolly like, zoom, by the way. <laughs> maybe the Dolly Zoom can be the metaphor for like our conversational approach on this podcast. I love it. But also thank you for teaching me the term Dolly Zoom. <laughs> That's the um, right term. We'll just move on. Wait, you think it's not the right term? Yeah, but we'll fix it in post. Okay, sounds good. It will just be us talking and then like Jim Lastra's voice saying like whatever the correct name of the Zoom is. <laughs> yes. Like Hitchcock Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so what I what I wanted to ask you was we watched Black Christmas from 1974. Yes. And we watched Relic from 2020. Yes. They are both movies that announced themselves in some way as framed by Christmas, Black Christmas in the title and, you know, throughout, and then Relic by the, one of the early, I can't remember if you said this, but one of the early shots is sort of shots of the grandmother alone in her house, which is isolated in the woods before Emily Mortimer's character and the daughter have shown up. And so there, that is like, when you said the movie is so much about like the surveillance of your family members, 
that's sort of like before that starts. And so I feel like there's this floating question of like, who's doing the looking at that point, especially because yeah. the camera is sort of like behind her in that sort of classic horror tropey way where you just see the back of the grandmother's head and you don't see the face. And so there's an implied, like there is something looking here, but it is not yet the characters that, that are gonna come in later. But there are sort of Christmas ornaments and like centrally, I think a like a classic Christmas tree with lights and the lights are set to that setting where they glow and then they fade out and they glow and they fade out, which also mirrors the like the pulse of the sound of the movie. Like, so the first thing we hear is this kind of like slow pulse, which I think is like mirrored in the lights, um, but not like, it doesn't come back to Christmas. And like one thing you texted me as we were watching was, I wonder how Christmas is gonna come back into this. Yeah. And I, I wonder if you if you think it did. Um, yeah, um, but anyway, so like one thing I was wanted to ask you was, you know, it feels like Black Christmas is from this time. And I think like these, these movies really show you how like horror, the horror movies of like a particular decade or a particular moment are just sort of like exfoliate whatever like mass anxiety is going on then, right? And I feel like so many, like I'm not, I don't know, I'm not that big of a horror genre person, but I feel like a lot of horror movies from like 70s and 80s and maybe 90s are like fear of like the unleashing of women's sexuality, especially like young women's sexuality, right? So like Black Christmas is so much about that. And it's set in. And a, I feel like we're in a moment in, now. Just to point sorry, out, it's set, in a, it's set in a sorority house. That's right. Over that's the right. holidays. Yeah. Totally. And I feel, as, as you also like just mentioned, I feel like now we're in a moment that we have so many horror movies about mothers, right? Um, and so like, I guess that was one thing that I thought we could maybe talk about is like, what is this moment of like mothers that we're in right now? I mean, even thinking of like Darren Aronofsky's movie, Mother! Exclamation <laughs> mark. Um, but also the other ones that you named. Mother is a great example because it's also set in like one house mm. where you get a right. sense that, you know, like, um, and I don't know, like the, the woman's body is so tied to the architecture of the house, which is so much similar to what we end up seeing in Relic. Um, you know, I was just having this conversation on Facebook, actually. Um, a friend of mine was pointing out, because I was pointing out how on the Hallmark Channel and Lifetime, we, I, it feels like since, you know, really since Love Actually, I guess, might be the Hallmark moment, there's just been so many, um, no pun intended, so many sort of romantic Christmas movies that have been released, which really feels so different from the kid-centered, family-focused Christmas movie. And, right. you know, um, a friend of mine, her name is Jan, she was saying that she feels like what she's been seeing is that Christmas feels like culturally, it's transforming more and more into a mom's holiday. Starting, mm -hmm. I guess, her point was from pumpkin spice season on, as like, sort of like this moment for that moms are in control of and that moms sort of like, enjoy and I feel like a lot of the feminization, if we want to say that, of Christmas movies um, with these sort of like romance plots being the center of a lot of those movies. Um, 
versus more of like the It's a Wonderful Life style of movie where it was so much more about the family. Um, it had to do with that. And I'm just thinking about like, if that's possible, if that's like, you know, if like sort of anxieties and maybe guilt about how much labor is put on mothers. I mean, I feel like we're in a year where that's been exacerbated so much by this pandemic, like the sense that now moms also have to be the preschool teacher and like all the playmates for the children and also working from home. Um, and also like everything for both your husband and your and your children and your parents. Um, and not having a sense of like a community that can be physically close to you. If that's sort of like, if that's going to continue this sort of trend that we're seeing where, you know, Relic is really so much about sort of, I think like the guilt of not being there for your mother, but also not, <laughs> not knowing how to do that. Yeah, I wrote down the phrase chain of disappointment in my <laughs> notes as we were watching this movie. Yeah. Um, and the, the last shot is like pretty blunt about the point that it's making, right? Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> in a way, it's not a spoiler though. I mean, I think that it's so, um, this movie is about so much more than the surprises that happen. What, uh, what else did you, what other connections did you make or what other thoughts did you have um, as the movie was going on? Well, I think that um, a lot of movies about aging take as sort of like the premise that it's awful to lose your memories. Or, you know, I mean, I think that like, it's horrible to lose your memories that that is like part of the horror of aging. And I've been thinking about, you know, I'm trying to think about my own memories of this year and my own sort of just like experience during this pandemic, both of film watching and also, you know, of whatever the hell else we've been doing this year um, while it quarantined. And I feel like I've been actively really resisting making memories this year. I remember mm -hmm. having this conversation with you where I talked about how, you know, like you were asking me what I was gonna do for the holidays. And I said that, you know, I, I really didn't wanna make any new memories this year. I didn't wanna continue traditions. And I felt like I needed to do that because I, I didn't want my future self to think back to this year. Like I actually didn't want my future self to have positive associations that would bring me back to this year because it's just been really hard and I haven't felt like, making new memories and um, I feel like Relic maybe gets there a little bit, even though it's not the kind of explicit message, but also like, you know, it's actually like very freeing when she's sort of like that scene where the grandmother is burying the photo album in the sense that like, actually you, it's nice to be free of memories too, even though it's, it can be awful to lose control of those. Well, yeah, well, I was also, you have. Well, I, I really like what you just said. And like, I, I had a similar thought of like, I mean, so much of me memory is so much of what we enjoy about each other. And I, I don't know if it's disproportionate, but I think it might be like, you know, when you 
see someone that you haven't seen in a while and you're like, hey, remember when? And like what you're enjoying about that person is their capacity to remember as opposed to like, like their gait when they run or what, like other things that don't require memory, you know? And like, I was thinking about how shattering it is when someone loses their memory. And I was like, okay, but if like, if we didn't, if memory wasn't one of like the top things that we enjoyed about each other, then they would still have other stuff. Like, I don't know, the like curve of their spine or whatever. And you could still enjoy those things. Like you wouldn't need memory. Yeah. I mean, I think that so much of, um, I mean, to bring it back to basketball, so much of sports fandom and friendships built around sports fandom is, based on that too, right? Like having the same, knowing that someone else has the same memory of an event happening and the same like feelings around that event, like the same feelings that you had when you saw the championship game in 2016. So do you think Christmas came back into the movie? I don't think it did. I think I was like pleasantly surprised that it didn't actually. Yeah. Then then why did it start? Sorry? I think it's set up as the frame and it needs to be there at the beginning because this is a movie about family. Yeah. Even though, you know, we're led to believe that it's sort of like a movie about like body horror and um, and aging and, you know, the occult. <laughs> and Christmas is like the perfect um, counter to that. But I think actually right. it didn't it didn't feel like it was missing that Christmas didn't come back. Yeah, and Christmas is the event of the younger generation's return to visit upon the older generation, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Christmas is time travel. That, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I was just gonna say like Christmas is the time that people narrate as like, oh, whatever distance that I've traveled since I was young, I recant that distance for Christmas time right and you're sort of like thrown back into a younger body you're thrown back into younger habits um I mean in a way like the child at Christmas time is the one undergoing the body horror right um because it's sort of like this self that you've tried to shed and like a sort of assiduously build new habits into um, they sort of get undone and you're kind of like confronted with this like doubling of your past self when you go back for Christmas. Yeah, I mean, I think that for younger younger generations, often like memory is the thing that's used against you. Other uh, yeah. memories of you, like if it's that memory of like you, you know, the unflattering memory of your younger self wearing like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, like little. Yeah. Um, little outfits and things that you'd rather not be confronted with as part of your part of your history what did you think of the scene when the mom eats the photos or the grandmother eats the photographs i'm thinking about how that contrasts with the the many many images that we get in the movie of the grandma who has scattered post-it note reminders all around her house. We, we get that as like this very um, visceral sense of how much she's lost her control over, you know, like her daily life. So like post-it notes that say like flush the toilet or like take your pills or um, 
poignantly, you are loved is one of the post-it notes. And um, your mother has green eyes is one of the post-it notes. So this sense that somehow like the images aren't holding her memories, that actually it's like these very practical reminders to herself of how to get through the day, which is how to survive her, are actually like somehow stronger than the, I don't know, the, the images in those photo albums. Because you, you would want to think that the images in the photo albums are actually like the surest container of memory, right? Like that's why we keep photo albums. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I, I hadn't thought at all about the fact that photographs and post-it notes are totally related, right? I mean, they're both memory devices. And actually like post-it, if post-it was like a 21st century company that was more like Apple, the, the name would not emphasize the like mechanical feature of posting it but it would be yeah. something about memory you have to imagine right like if it was yeah. branded today it would, it would be, be like memo memory it. with a, a vowel removed or something wait what it would be called memo it oh that's so good <laughs> yeah exactly i'm also thinking about just like the difference between memory and prophecy in this movie I mean, we we get these like very um, haunting, like image rich dreams that Emily Mortimer's character has where we get a sense of like, not only that in her dreams, she has like these nightmares about what happened to this. We get a sense, is it like a great grandfather or something who, um, you know, suffered like this gruesome fate in a cabin that used to be on the property. But, you know, by the end of the movie, we also get very much a sense that like there was something really prophetic in those streams too. Like there was this way that it wasn't just a memory. It was also a sign of, or like an auguring of what is to come for this family. And that was one of these like beautiful touches in the movie that I thought was really well done. And I don't know if only it were the case that for, that in human life, memory was more often prophecy. It feels like that's like one of those cinematic wishes that doesn't happen in real life. Do you, do you want to um, wrap up by going back and forth and saying like other details or moments that you're gonna remember? Yeah, um, not yeah. To, not to thematically underline what we're doing, but yeah, of, of either movie. Um, well, this was something that you pointed out to me from Black Christmas, Dan, but it's actually such an early slasher movie, like mm -hmm. earlier than, you know, a lot of the other ones that were um, accustomed to thinking as slasher movies like Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street or Halloween. And I was just thinking how funny it is that one of the earliest slasher movies is, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't devolve into like the final girl trope that actually, you know, has sort of like a stronger sense of like female strength. Um, but mm -hmm. also that this movie, I don't know, it still like humors me that this movie is Canadian and that like one of the early <laughs> slasher movies would be Canadian instead of American. Cause I think of the slasher as so much of an American, specifically American invention, you know. Um, mm. American culture, I think just has that sense of violent energy and sort of like um, real sort of attachment to like charismatic violent personalities that I, I would have assumed that there would be more of an American genesis to the genre.
Well, in Canada, you know, winter is murderous. So I feel like that's Canadian about it. <laughs> like in Canada, like when you wake up in the morning on the, on the like weather report, they tell you how many minutes you can be outside with the exposed skin before you have frostbite. That's part <laughs> of the like the weather reading. So they'll be like, the temperature is this, it's like cloudy. And like after 10 minutes of exposure, your nose will fall off. And that's just <laughs> something that you like grow up with in the winter time, you know? And so you like innately associate winter with like the possibility of dying. <laughs> that's helpful. I think the other thing from Black Christmas that will really stay with me is just like those beautiful like tracking, you know, just camera shots where it's moving so methodically through the house, but also where you so much don't have a sense of, you, you know, what's really held from you is this sense like, what are we seeing here? Like, are we seeing the camera as like the manifestation of a person thinking? Or is it just like a killer instinct? Like, is it just like an impulse or something? Just like going through the house very quickly. Um, I really enjoyed that about it. I mean, I was, it was so nice to see that early on when I associate that so much with the John Carpenter movie, Halloween, and actually to see, oh no, there's like a, this, it actually precedes that tradition. How yeah, totally, to build off Oh, just how about for you? What, what moments, what images stuck with you? Are you still thinking about? Yeah, well, so I, I actually, just before I go to that, I was just thinking of something you said earlier about how horror trains you to look away from like the center of the screen. And, um, and what you were just saying about like the architecture of the house, like, and I think like mostly the suburban house. Right, and so it, I'm sure someone has written about the history of horror and the history of like white flight and like the buildup of the suburbs in the U.S. Right, like that sort of intertwined story. Um, so um, if if you if you know someone who's written this or if you've written this yourself, shoot us an email: watchingfilmpod at gmail.com. Let us know what to read, um, and we'll shout you out on the next episode. Um, yeah, but like it made me realize like it, usually when there's a scene in a house in the movies, it's about what's happening in that room. But in horror, it's usually about what's happening in, in another room, right? And so mm -hmm. there is a kind of um, movement between rooms or like just like a tension about the movement between rooms that like I can't really think of that happening in any other genre. Um, the only thing that I think of is like those like really sweeping romantic shots in Tree of Life. Um, do you remember those scenes? Yeah. Where like, but that's so the polar opposite effectively, right? I mean, that's sort of like like the dreamscape of the family. Um, but yeah, but in horror, it's like like the movement and the connection between rooms is sort of like thematically significant in a way that like I can't think of that being like material for a film in any other genre. I really love that. Yeah, I mean, it's, the horror movie is so much like domestic melodrama in that way of like just even centering the home as like the place where life happens or the place where action happens. Um, yeah, so other moments, uh, I don't know if these connect to anything, but um, so one thing that I noticed was like at the end of uh, Relic, 
um, when the daughter is trying to break through the wall to get through to the other side and mm -hmm. she's hearing the, like muffled sounds of her mother on another floor and like the muffled voice of her mother right and it made so me think the house has sort of swallowed her up mysteriously right. which is actually right. trapped within the house yeah which was a scene that I missed because I was like texting or something. So I had to have you explain that to me. So thank you for catching me up while it was happening. Um, yeah, you know, like watching film is like a collective endeavor. Um, <laughs> it's not a solo activity. Um, but yeah, that made me think, think about how like the palette of muffled sounds of voices and steps from somewhere in the house is so much part of the soundscape of family life. You know, and like when you grow up in a house, like that is a main way that you experience your family atmospherically. Like obviously you like talk to them and you hang out with them and you have fights with them and stuff, but just the sound of muffled footsteps somewhere else in the house is just part of the regular sort of environment of like being in a family in a house, right? And so I really like that moment late in the movie where it's sort of like, took that sort of palette um, and, and like turned it to the uses of the film, right? Yeah, I love that, Dan, especially because, you know, in the way that you're describing it, normally those sounds of like your muffled family are like the source of comfort, like the sure sign that you're not solo right. at home. Right. And in this movie, it's like, it's turned into horror with like the sense of not being able to reach different parts of your family, different rooms. Yeah, totally. So how should we uh, wrap up podcasts? That's such a good question. I've been trying to think about that too, and it's not obvious to me. Well, so we we just did a bit, which was like, what were some like moments that you'll remember, like takeaways? Yeah, and I, I like that actually, Dan, because we can easily translate that to like games that we're watching too. Yeah, okay. And like, I'm sure we'll like find out other like closing moves as we do more of these. We can experiment. Yeah. We can just, we can just, should we, so how do we actually sign off? <laughs> we have to, we have to say something that can be recorded for a sign off. Um, I, we clear, we just need catchphrases that we each say. Okay. I thought that this What's would your... be where like duck would come in and like, oh. you know. <clears throat> I can record him howling along to something and that can just be our oh. outro music. Oh, that would be so nice. Like, you know, maybe it's like um, a song from like the theme song of, a f of whatever film we were watching. And then if hmm. like howls along to it. It just has to be like classical music and it has <laughs> to be like very high pitched and loud, so. Okay. Well, it can just yeah. be different. It can just be different pieces that you're practicing. Yeah, or maybe I'll just play him like the soundtrack to Barry Lyndon. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Okay, well, um, I don't have that material today, so um, How about let's we just say to each other, "Thank you for watching film with me, Dan." Oh, that's so nice. Thank you for watching film with me, TT. Anytime. I'll see you next time. I'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>